Love it. Um, well, if we've never met before, my name is Kate Grounds, and I am technically on staff of the Lewis House, which is kind of like a sister organization of CSF. Um, but I do a lot of stuff with CSF2 because I love you all, including leading my first ever core group this year. So shout out to my core group, girlies. You know who you are. I love you guys. You're great. Um, I am genuinely so pumped to be here with you all tonight. I'm also just truly pumped you guys are back on campus. I think the staff can agree with me, but it's actually just really boring and sad without you guys here in the summer. It's just, it's just not as fun. Um, also, not going to lie, one of my absolute favorite things about having you guys back on campus is I feel like I get judged at the Euclid Kroger way less often. Like, when, yeah, when you're gone, like, the non-college students are just way more judgy. Um, in fact, one of my favorite memories from spring semester was, I don't know if any of you guys are like this, but I was just having a bad day, and I just decided to, like, risk public embarrassment and go to Kroger in my slippers and buy a pint of ice cream. I don't know if any of you guys are, like, pint of ice cream people when you're having a bad day. I see a few head nods. And I went to get my pint of ice cream in my slippers, and I'm, like, checking out. And I look to my left, and there's this UK student who like not only has his slippers on, but he has like full PJs on and he's like, his hair is a mess. And he's also buying like a singular pint of ice cream. And as he's checking out, we just like make eye contact and like do one of these. And I just really feel in my, my soul that we just like sent a prayer to each other in that moment, which was like, may the grace of God go with you as you drown your sorrow and sugar. It was, it was just beautiful. Could only happen if you live this close to a college campus. So all I'd say, I'm just so happy you guys are back. Thank you for making me feel like just championed as I buy ice cream. Tuesday nights in my slippers. It's great. Um, you all just make downtown campus and uh, just Lexington in general so much better to live. Um, but I want to kick off our time together tonight with a little story, if that's all right. Um, so legend has it, there was a seminary professor at a nearby seminary a while back who wanted to teach her students a tangible lesson about God's grace. Now, you might think, why in the world would seminary students, you know, future church leaders and pastors, need to learn about God's grace? But you'd be surprised. Sometimes it's very easy to read the Bible, study the Bible, learn the Bible, teach the Bible, without ever really understanding God's grace for yourself. So she starts brainstorming, okay, how can I make the grace of God, like, connect with these seminary students, not just on a head level, but on a heart level, too? Well, eventually the end of the semester rolls around, and it's time for the students to take the final exam in her class. So they show up, they're kind of like shuffling in nervously, like down in their last bit of coffee as you do when you're getting ready to take a final. And it comes time for class to start, and she walks up to the front of the room, and she says, hey, like you're not actually going to be taking your final exam because I've decided to give you guys all an immediate 100%. It's a true story. I thought I know. Um, put yourself in that scenario. Like how you feeling? Like show of hands, how many of you guys are like, I'm taking the free 100? Like this is great for me. Okay, decent amount. How many of you guys are like, that's annoying? I would just be straight up annoyed. Anyone? <laughs> I love that, like, the rest of you guys are like, give me the free 100. Yeah, turns out the responses were very, very all over the place um, because how the students responded really depended on what type of student they were leading up to the final exam. Like, for some students, they slacked off and didn't study. You know, maybe they should have studied. They just didn't for whatever reason. They wanted to hang out with their friends. And so for those students, they're probably, like, fist pumping in the back. Like, yes, this is unbelievable luck. I needed this, this grace. I needed the 100%. For other students, apparently there was, like, like, a group of students who almost had an emotional reaction. Like, maybe they wanted to study more than they could, but for whatever reason they couldn't. Like, maybe... I don't know, maybe they had tough family circumstances or, like, working to put themselves through school. And so for those students, you can almost hear, like, a tangible sigh of, like, 
okay, like I actually really needed this. I really, really needed the good grade to be able to continue on in grad school. And then unsurprisingly with grad students, there's a third group who were annoyed because those are students that came in like they were confident, like I'm going to ace this test. Like I have studied night after night in the library and like they're looking around. They can very clearly tell that their classmates like did not study as much as they did and they were annoyed. And like truth be told, they didn't even want a free 100. Like they only wanted a grade they felt like they deserved. And it turns out each individual student's reaction was largely dependent on their felt need for grace in that moment. Well, we're in this three-week series called Vantage Point. Uh, and in this series, we're taking a look at one of the most famous stories Jesus ever told, the story of the prodigal son. And just like this professor's bold, although somewhat controversial demonstration, this story is meant to teach us a tangible lesson about God's grace. If you know much about the story, you know there's three main characters. There's a father, his older son, and his younger son. And so each week in the series, we're going to look at the story from one of the main characters' point of view. And so last week, our very own B. Marsh did great. He kicked us off talking about this story from the eyes of the younger son. Uh, and tonight, I'm going to talk to you about the story from the eyes of the older son. And I want to read through this parable together again tonight. Um, before we do, I want to just really quickly like set the scene and remind us why Jesus decides to tell this story, this parable in the first place. Uh, so listen to what Luke records at the start of this chapter. You can follow along on the screen. He says, Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of the religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. So Jesus told them this story. So Jesus goes on in this chapter to tell them a handful of different stories, including the story of the prodigal son, uh, which, again, we're going to read through together here in just a minute. But according to these verses, the reason Jesus tells this story in the first place is because he believes the Pharisees need to learn a lesson. They do not understand why Jesus, who's supposed to be a super moral, upright teacher, is spending so much of his free time with, with sinners and disreputable people and tax collectors. And so Jesus decides to set the record straight by telling them a series of stories. So with that in mind, let's dive in to the story of the prodigal son. To illustrate this point farther, Jesus told them a story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want the share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, the younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. About that time, his money ran out, and a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into the field to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I'll go home to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. Um, show of hands, any eldest siblings in the room? Where are you at? Yeah, is that, wasn't that your question for tonight? Okay, yeah. I'm technically the oldest sibling by 37 minutes because I'm a twin, so I was like trying to think about what I'd put on that sticker, and I'm not even sure. Um, I am a twin, but I've always kind of taken on the, the eldest sibling role. Like my mom said, by the time me and my twin brother got to kindergarten, our teachers were like, you need to split us up because Kate's like very mothering. I'd be like, get in line and just very older sibling-esque. Um, any younger siblings in the room? Yeah, shout out. I don't really understand you guys, but I'm glad you're here. Uh, any middle children? Sorry. You're <laughs> yeah. Yeah, moment for the middle children because you guys get no love this whole series. So we're glad you're here. God bless the middle children. We love you all. Um, 
But regardless of where you fall in your family's birth order, um, I want us all just for a minute to kind of try to put ourselves in the older brother's shoes. Just like any good older sibling, you have done what is expected of you your entire life. Like you've avoided a life of sin, you've kept your head down, you've worked hard to make your father happy. Like day in, day out, you've done your duty. You've made it one of your life missions to set a good example for your younger sibling. You go to church every Sunday, you take your faith seriously, you take your relationship seriously, you take your commitment seriously. And then out of nowhere, you find out this younger brother, who you've worked so hard to set a good example for, has decided to go rogue, shirk off his responsibilities, and chase after his passions instead. Now, this obviously insults you as the older sibling. You're like, first off, rude. How could you? I've been giving you a very good example to follow. But worse than that, he insults your all's father. If you remember, Ryan said this last week, but by asking for half his inheritance, younger brother's basically saying, like, hey, dad, it's cool that you're here, but I actually kind of wish you were dead, and, like, I'd rather have your money so I can go spend that however you want. Like, I care more about your money than you, which is exactly what he does. He takes the money and runs, and he spends it on endless amounts of sex and drugs and alcohol, And while he's off partying up, there you are at home, doing your duty, day in, day out. And it's worse because not only are you still doing your duty, but now you're picking up your brother's slack. And he's off just having a ball, and you're having to work twice as hard to make up for the fact that he's gone. And then one day, I'm so intrigued because he doesn't say this in the story. Like, how long does this go on for? Like a day, a week, a month, a year? I don't know, but day after day, this older brother is picking up the slack for his younger brother, and then you find out of nowhere he's decided to come home. Like, how do you feel? You've got to feel at least a little bit resentful if you're the older brother in this story. Let's keep reading to find out. So the younger brother returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with the feast, for the son of mine was dead, and he's now returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. So the party began. Okay, again, if you're the older brother, you've got to be kind of pissed. Like Your kid brother's off, being an idiot, spending all your dad's money, And then your dad does not even give him a lecture. Like, if I'm the older brother, I'm thinking, like, how in the world is my younger brother supposed to understand right from wrong if my dad doesn't even lecture him? Like, what's worse, he doesn't even give him a lecture. He just welcomes him in. He throws him a party. He gives him a robe. He kills the fattened calf. Like, in your mind, your dad should be taking out the red pen, like, underlining all the mistakes, circling all the mistakes. He bypasses that. He just gives him a straight-up undeserved 100. As I've been studying this story, one of the things that stands out to me is Jesus could have ended the story here. Like, it has a very happy ending. The younger son comes home. There's a party. Everything seems well. But he doesn't. He keeps going. Why? He keeps going because this story is not really about the younger brother. You know, like Brian taught us last week, we have a lot to learn from his perspective too. But really, the story is about the older brother. Because, again, Jesus is telling this story to the Pharisees. They're supposed to identify with the older brother in this situation, and so they're the ones he's trying to teach a lesson to. Let's keep reading. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother's back, he was told, and your father's killed the fattened calf. We're celebrating because of a safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, 
All these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me. And at all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back, after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. His father said, look, dear son, you have always stayed by me and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day. For your brother was dead and he's come back to life. He was lost, but now he's found. So interesting, because given the circumstances, it does not seem like the brother is overreacting. Like, that feels like a very, like, proportional response based off the situation at hand. So what is Jesus trying to communicate in this story? Like, what is he trying to get through to the Pharisees? I'd say he's trying to help them see that both brothers in the story are lost, and both brothers, in their own way, are in bondage. Now, what they're in bondage to looks really differently, but they both become a slave to something. The younger son, as Brian kind of talked about last week, I'd say he's become a slave to his passions. Like, he's decided to chase after what makes him happy in the moment. He just, that, that is his sole goal in life. He runs away. He spends his money. He lives recklessly. And then, if you remember, like, he ends up in a position no better than the pig. So he kind of ends up in a position of bondage. The older brother's interesting. I'd say he's become a slave to perfectionism. He believes he's more worthy of his father's love because he performs and he does what he's supposed to. And when this younger brother comes back and the father just graciously welcomes him with open arms, this core belief of his gets shaken. And for the first time ever, he realizes, okay, this is interesting. Like, my father's love for me is not dependent on what I do or don't do. And he struggles. You can feel, like, you can feel the anger, like, just dripping in that passage we just read. He struggles to understand and kind of comprehend that type of love. And at first glance, this type of lost is a lot harder to pick up on. You know, the older brother's technically living in his father's house the whole time. He's doing what's right. He looks more free than his brother on the outside. But when it comes down to it, he's adopted a mindset that's prevented him from experiencing compassion and joy. And if you've adopted a mindset that's preventing you from experiencing compassion and joy, how free are you really? As I've read and just reread this passage so many times leading up to this sermon, I can't get away from this one word, joy. You know, the father of the story, he's just overflowing. He's dripping with compassion and joy. He loves both sons equally. Yet when he comes to his eldest son and he extends this invitation, he says, come, join. Like, I don't want this party to happen without you. He can't do it. He can't do it because his perfectionism is preventing him from experiencing joy. Because that's what perfectionism does to us. It zaps our ability to experience compassion and joy. It perpetuates the lie that we have to earn God's love. And if left unchecked, we'll eventually feel the super ugly competitiveness and bitterness that will seep into our relationships with others. And without meaning to, we end up looking a lot like the Pharisees. Not only do we struggle to comprehend God's compassion and joy towards us, but eventually we will become a stumbling block that actually prevents other people from experiencing God's joy and compassion too. I don't know if you guys like this. I'm just a big visual learner, so I just, like, love to imagine this scene playing out in my head. And I just imagine the father standing there. And he is just, like, biggest grin on his face. This man has no tension in his body. He is at peace with himself. He's at peace with the world. He's just happy. He's happy to be there. He's happy to have his son home. But he wants his other son, too. And so he starts to go into the party. I just imagine he just ever so gently just extends a hand to the elder son. He's like, come. Like, I don't want this party without you. Like, it's not just about your brother. Like, I want you here, too. I just imagine the older son just, like, standing there, like, feet so planted, like, arms crossed, just a look of disgust on his face, and he refuses, and he refuses to go in. 
And as his father turns, you can just, like, see the wheel starting to turn as he starts to, like, pile up the scores and think, like, how in the world could I not be loved more than my brother? I think it's really ironic that in refusing his father's invitation, in a way, he kind of throws himself another party instead, like a little pity party. He, he blows up balloons of bitterness. He hangs up streamers of sadness. He bakes his little cake full of contempt. And bro just throws himself a good old-fashioned pity party. So again, which of the two brothers is more in bondage at the end of the day? The younger brother who's enslaved to his passions or the older brother who's become a slave to perfectionism? Now, we know how the story ends for the younger brother. Jesus makes it clear. He comes back. He ultimately accepts his father's forgiveness and compassion. He experiences joy as a result. But we don't know how the story ends for the older brother. Like, Jesus leaves it intentionally vague. I love how author Henry Now puts it. He's one of my favorite uh, spiritual authors. He wrote a whole book called The Return of the Prodigal Son. Super good. Highly recommend. Um, but listen to what he says. He says, the father wants not only his younger son back, but his elder son as well. The elder son, too, needs to be found and led back into the house of joy. Will he respond to his father's plea or remain stuck in his bitterness? Any, uh, any perfectionists in the room? Oh, yeah, I love that. you. I didn't think you were going to raise your hand, but, yeah, own it. Um, I figured in a room their size, there's got to be at least a few. Um, I came up with a list of questions to help you decipher how similar you might be to the older brother in this story. I'm going to read through them really quick. You can just sit there and reflect on how much this relates to you. Uh, but first question, do you believe the gospel with your head but have a hard time accepting it on an emotional level? Do you think God's love for you is dependent on how many good things you do or don't do for him? Do you tend to derive your self-worth from how good you're doing in school or sports or volunteer roles or fill in the blank? Do you compare yourself to others or put others down to feel better about yourself? Do you struggle to accept forgiveness when you make a mistake, or do you dwell on your mistakes for an unhealthy period of time? And then finally, would you describe your relationship with God more as a duty or as a joy? Maybe for some of you guys tonight, like, you've grown up in church your entire life. Like, you've stayed on the straight and narrow, and, like, even since coming to college, you've avoided all the big don'ts. Like, you haven't done drugs, you don't sleep around, you don't party, you don't drink. Like, you do what's expected of you and then some. But if you're honest with yourself, your relationship with God feels more like a duty than a joy. And you just have this constant sense that God's not really pleased with you. And just like this nagging anxiety that never really goes away, that you're never doing enough good to stay in his good graces. So I'll raise the question to you now. If you've adopted a mindset of faith that's preventing you from experiencing compassion and joy, how free are you really? A couple weeks ago, Brian came up and asked me if I would be interested in preaching um, this story from the perspective of the older brother. I thought about it for like 20 seconds. I was like, yeah, no, definitely, because I am like the older brother in this scenario. Um, it was also funny because I was mentioning this topic to my roommate, who's also very older brother type. And I was like, maybe we should start like a support group for all the perfectionistic, super anxious older brother types. And she's like, yes, it'll be so organized and put together. So we can do that after if you want. Joking, kind of, not really. Um, but I just, by nature, am very, very perfectionistic. Um, and even before I was a Christian, I just had this really deep-rooted fear of not being good enough and letting people down. And that's one of the reasons when I heard the gospel for the first time at 17, it was so appealing to me. Because I was so intrigued by this concept of a God whose love for me was not dependent on how well I did or didn't perform. It just felt like a breath of fresh air. 
Um, fun fact about me, I recently turned 30, which is cool. We love a new, de- thank you. We love a new decade of life. Um, but something fun that happens when you turn 30 is people just start asking you really deep, reflective questions about the decade you just left. So prepare yourself, uh, which is fine because I actually love all the deep questions. It's great for me. Uh, but one of the questions that someone asked me that I thought was really interesting the week of my birthday is they said, what do you think most prevented you from growing in your faith throughout your 20s? And I had to really think on it. I wanted to give them an honest answer. So I thought for a few minutes, and then finally I came up with a one-word response. I said, perfectionism. That I was surprised how much this perfectionistic mindset had stuck with me even after I became a Christian and still really, really deeply affected the way I viewed myself and God. Again, I'm by nature just super driven. I have this very deep desire to, like, grow and learn and read a billion books and, like, be the best version of myself I can, which there's good sides to that. But I also believe that our gifts come with a shadow side when we lean into them in unhealthy ways. And for me, like, I led into that in such an unhealthy way that eventually it just robbed me of my joy. It made me very self-focused, made me very focused on being good enough and just fueled the self-pity and anxiety in comparison and pride. And then, if that wasn't bad enough, I decided to go into ministry at the end of college, um, which, fun fact, if you want to just, like, hate yourself more and, like, be more of a perfectionist. Ministry is a very good career path to go into. Highly recommend. Um, But the reason it can feel so heavy as a pastor is because not only do people expect pastors to be very put together and holy, which, understandable, we're leading you all in some way, but also, like, your generation knows this. Some would say there's been, like, a crisis of church leadership in the past 10 years. We've seen a lot of big-name church leaders fall. And so stepping into church ministry at 23, I felt the weight of that on my shoulders, and I felt it every year since. And a couple years ago, I was probably like 25 or 26, the stress just got really, really bad. And like you couldn't tell from the outside. That was the most fascinating part. I'm on stage, I'm preaching, I'm leading, I'm doing the thing in a ministry wall at the church I was working at. But inside, I was just miserable, so anxious, and like tearing myself apart for every little mistake I made. And so I knew, I, I hit a point where I was like, okay, I need to go like work this out with the Lord. Uh, so I took a day and just like went and took time to pray and just whatever I can like sense the Lord needs to do something in me, always just say like, Holy Spirit, like reveal the lie that I'm believing about myself and then like show me the truth. Just spent some time in prayer and just just really felt like the Lord like said to me, you know, like enough's enough, like the gospel's for you too, Um, which is so simple. Like that's the simplest thing. Of course the gospel's for me too. I've preached it however many years I've I've been a Christian, however many years I'd, I'd been on staff at this church, but it wrecked me. Like it really wrecked me and it just was like a pivotal moment in my faith, and it helped me understand, like, wow, the gospel is so easy to say. In some senses, it's easy to, to understand. It's, it can be really, really hard to accept on a personal level. And so that was just like a good rip the Band-Aid off for me personally in my spiritual journey and really spent the next, like, gosh, three to four years, like, really allowing the Lord to start to heal these perfectionistic tendencies in me and really let him show me what it looks like to view myself the way that he sees me and learning to actually accept his compassion and grace. And it's interesting because now that I'm about four or five years out of that season, the one thing I'd say is it's restored a level of joy to my faith I just didn't know was missing. You know, Psalms 51.12 says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. I didn't even know that was a prayer I was supposed to be praying until I, I hit that moment and the Lord helped me realize, like, you're missing joy in your faith because you're so caught up in this perfectionism. One of the things I find most interesting about Jesus as I just read and reread the Gospels, which I'm actually reading through them right now, is how often the Gospel writers say little kids wanted to spend time with Jesus. Like all throughout the Gospel, it makes note to the fact that little kids wanted to come up and hang out with Jesus. And I've been thinking about that. I've been thinking about like, okay, what are the characteristics in adults that little kids want to spend time with them? 
Like, I don't know if you've been around little kids lately. I'd say one of the main ones is joy. Like, little kids want to be around super, super joyful adults because they themselves are just like these little tangible representations of joy. If you've been around kids, you know they care way more about the joy you carry than the super long, impressive list on your resume. Which I think is really interesting that Jesus tells us to become like little kids. You know, we know Jesus was a man of sorrow. We talk all the time about his death and resurrection and the amount of anguish and pain he experienced while he was here on earth. But he was also the most joyful person who's ever walked this planet. Like, yes, he was a man of deep sorrow. He was also a man of deep joy. And for those of you in this room who identify more with the older brother in the story, I want to invite you to start to think about God through that lens as the ultimate carrier of joy. Because I really do think that's the invitation in the room tonight for the older brothers is to shake off your perfectionism, this internal sense that you're never going to be good enough to be accepted by God, and to learn slowly to start to walk in joy and to realize he's already given you the free run hundred. Like he died on the cross for you too. And just like the older brother in the story of the prodigal son, he's got his hand extended towards you and he's inviting you in to a deeper season of freedom and healing and joy. Henry Nowen, he has so many good insights in that book. But as I reread it, there's one insight that just like rose to the top for me and stood out among the rest. And he says that whether or not you identify with the older son or younger son in the story is, is somewhat irrelevant because at the end of the day, we're all called to become like the father. That once we accept our father's compassion and joy, we're actually meant to become like him in that way and to carry that compassion and joy to a broken and lost world around us. So I want to encourage you guys, come back next week as we wrap up this series on the prodigal son and get to hear from Mike Bro on what it looks like to carry the father's heart in that way. Let's pray. Lord, just thank you so much um, for these students. And God, just thank you for the type of father you are. I don't know um, what each student's individual image of you is right now, Lord, but I just pray over this next little bit that you would just refine our image, sanctify our image, and just give us that picture that you gave us in this story of just this father who's overflowing with love and compassion for his children. That he's, you just have open arms, and you're just, you're just well, willing and welcome to, op- to welcome us back, no matter how far we ran. Whether, whether we're the older brother who's just stuck in perfectionism and seems close but is actually so far away, or whether we're the younger brother who has run so far and has, has gotten himself in a bad situation, is on their knees just begging for their father's forgiveness. Lord, wherever we're at, I just pray that you meet these students the next little bit and just remind us what type of father you are. We love you so much. In your name we pray. Amen. <laughs>